0: Good Tuesday. This is Ozarks at Large for January 17th, 2023. I'm Kyle Kellams. I'm Matthew Moore. Today is recognized
1: as the National Day of Racial Healing first observed on January 17, 2017, as part of the W.K. Kellogg Foundation's Truth, Racial Healing, and Transformation Initiative. The day is described as an opportunity to bring all humanity together in their common humanity and inspire collective action.
0: Among the events in Arkansas recognizing the National Day of Racial Healing, a panel discussion today titled, What Does Healing Mean?, hosted by the Ideals Institute at the University of Arkansas. And later this hour on our program, we'll talk with Alicia Smith, the executive director with the Ideals Institute, about the Institute and programs it's offering as a new year begins. Our conversation in about 12 minutes on today's show. First,
1: a recent study from the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences has found that one in four adults have experienced loss due to COVID-19. I spoke to Dr. Don Willis, an assistant professor for UAMS in the Community Health and Research Division, who says the loss was not equal for minority groups.
2: In particular for um, Black, Hispanic, American Indian, Alaskan Native, and Native Hawaiian or Pacific Islanders, the odds for those groups were two to three times higher to have lost a close friend or family member, compared to uh, white adults in the U.S.
1: Yeah, as I as I looked at your research and I saw that number one and four, the first thing that popped in my head is I can think of four people who I know haven't lost someone due to COVID, but what that means is that there are plenty of people out there who have lost more than one person due to COVID, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the limitations of this particular study was that we didn't ask people how many uh, losses they experienced, and just as you're alluding to, uh, that that loss can be, you know, compounded if you have lost, say, two, three, four, or even more loved ones. So, actually, in some subsequent research, we did add that question, and we'll be looking at that in some future analysis. When we're looking at
1: grief or bereavement, are we seeing a different kind of grief or bereavement when we look at those experiencing loss from COVID-19 compared to, say, heart attacks or long-term diabetes or dementia? Does that look different? And, and can you make any ideas of why it might look different?
2: Yeah, so there is some research pointing in in that direction, and it's another reason why we wanted to document the differences in exposure to COVID nineteen deaths. Was that there have been some prior studies showing that COVID nineteen deaths are uniquely stressful, that people who have lost someone due to COVID nineteen might have more severe or prolonged or complicated grief, and the thinking is that this might be due to some of the difficulties that came with coping with those losses during the pandemic so it may not necessarily be that the person died of covid-19 that is making it unique but it could just be the experience of losing someone during covid-19 where there are you know restrictions on gathering and things like that that are really important for folks to cope during that time so some people were unable to be with their loved ones before the deaths some folks had were not able to perform religious life religious rites or hold a funeral in the way that they might want to given the restrictions on social gatherings and who can be in hospitals at, at certain times during the pandemic so yeah,
1: and I wondered too, and and again, your research may not have been able to to find this specifically, but I wonder if there's also this uh, this guilt around I could have possibly been the one to have gotten them sick, or you know, COVID is such a unique way of you know of illness in such a way that you know your heart disease isn't contagious right um, you know um these these other sorts of things that are typical for a person later in life to die from um they're not contagious and they're certainly not contagious from a 20 year old nephew kind of thing right is there a, is there you know an element of that where there's a a different kind of grief where someone's wrestling with man maybe I was the one who got them sick
2: I think you're absolutely right that this is one of the plausible ways that COVID-19 losses could be more stressful. And actually we do document in our study that people who report having had a COVID-19 infection are more likely to have reported a loss of a family or a member or a friend due to COVID-19. But I don't think that we know yet I don't think we have a full picture uh, yet in terms of how how that might be one of the mechanisms that contributes to it being more stressful. But I think you're right to ask the question, and I think it's just it's an empirical question that I don't know anyone has answered just yet.
1: We're seeing the rise of a new dominant variant of COVID-19 currently with the XBB1-5, you know, and despite our determinations or wishes, we're still living with COVID. Do you worry that the denominator on your research will get smaller too soon, that instead of one in four, we may see one in three or one in two?
2: Yeah, I do worry about that. And I suspect that since the time that this study was conducted, there have been many more deaths. and so. I suspect that that the proportion of people who've experienced loss is probably growing and that those that had experienced loss in September or October of 2021 have by now possibly experienced more loss. And so, yeah, I do worry about this. And I think, you know, when we begin thinking about sort of the long-term consequences of a pandemic where there's been mass death across the society that we can't stop thinking about those consequences at the point of death. We have to think about what the consequences of those deaths are and the unequal distribution of those deaths and how that ripples out through people's social networks among the bereaved.
1: I'm trying to think of a way to end this <laughs> on a little bit less of a down yeah. note. Um, what gives you hope when you look at this research? You look at the studying. Do you think people are becoming more aware, uh, or, or people are maybe coming to terms better with their grief? I think grief is something that everyone inevitably deals with. But do you do you think that maybe we're learning how to grieve better? Do you do you think that maybe because so many people are dealing with this, that we're seeing some solidarity in our
2: bereavement? You know, I do think that folks probably don't have to look far to find somebody who has experienced something similar to theirs in terms of uh, losing someone to COVID-19. As you said, given that it's one in four people, if you lost someone due to COVID-19, you probably know someone else who also lost. You know, I, I do think that that is probably helpful uh, for folks to have others who experience something similar. One of the the main points of this paper, and maybe it's not as explicit as we should have been, is just that our social relationships and social connections are some of the most valuable resources that we have. So when when you lose someone, not only is it a uniquely stressful experience, but it's also the loss of a social connection that is invaluable to people's health over the life course. In a similar way, though, I, I, as I think you're suggesting, perhaps people will find and make new connections to others and empirically as far as the research goes I don't know whether this is happening or not but it would be probably a useful thing for for folks who are grieving to to be connected and be able to share and you know just have an ear to talk to and and someone to to listen to and so I do think that that is potentially a a source of hope I think the thing that gives me the most hope is that we do have more of a handle on treatments for COVID-19 than we did earlier in the pandemic. And we do have vaccines that, that are, are working and are effective and safe. In part, we, we largely have most of the tools that we need to begin really reducing infections and deaths. Dr.
0: Don Willis is an assistant professor at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences in the Community Health and Research Division. He talked with Matthew last week.
1: Ahead on Ozarks at Large, a failing Baxter County landfill owned by Ozark Mountain Solid Waste District, sealed by the state in 2018, could reopen under new ownership.
3: I just do not want to see it ever reopened for a landfill. It should have never been done in the first place.
1: That story in about 30 minutes on today's show.
0: The University of Arkansas School of Law is partnering with the Office of Entrepreneurship and Innovation for the Entrepreneurial Law Project. It's a one-day event in March that will pair local attorneys and law students with startups needing legal assistance establishing organizational structure and documentation. It's a limited participant event with applications open until tomorrow. Entrepreneurs who qualify and are selected will be partnered with a team of law students and a local supervising attorney on March 4th at the Brewer Family Entrepreneurship Hub. Applications can be filled out by following links at Airtable.com. Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art invites guests to the final weeks of Fashioning America, an exhibition dedicated to American fashion from across two centuries, with more than 100 garments and accessories on display. On view through January 30th. Tickets and information at crystalbridges.org. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellums. A bit more than three years ago, the Ideals Institute launched at the University of Arkansas under the direction of former Vice Chancellor Yvette Murphy Irby. The Institute is designed to serve both the campus and the community, allowing for exploration on how to include diversity, equity, and inclusion practices across an increasingly diverse region. The Institute works with both nonprofit and for profit organizations, as well as schools. Last week, we invited Alicia Smith, the Executive Director of the Ideals Institute, to come to the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio to discuss the Institute's work and its program scheduled for 2023. She says the Institute is not interested in one-time 90-minute sessions, but longer-term relationships.
4: Very often leaders are charged with, go find more diverse uh, candidates or go do something specific, but we are assuming that they have those skills. While they are very skilled and talented in other areas, they may not have what they need to really affect change or be who they would like to be in terms of their effectiveness in this particular area. We'd like to come alongside them to help them do that.
0: The impetus behind this is not to have one of those two hour, we've done a session, we check checked the box, see you next year sort of relationships.
4: Correct, correct. It's not a compliance approach where you can say you've done it. It's really, you know, this is hard work and there are inevitable pitfalls and progress that we can, we can predict and some we can't predict. And so um, having um, a group of people available to answer questions, to bounce some ideas off of, to offer some suggestions, to um, really walk alongside an entity is of value. And so that's one of the things that we offer.
0: To have a successful experience trying to do this work, you have to come in with at least a certain amount of, I hate the term buy-in, but a certain amount of of willingness and curiosity?
4: That's true. Um, the willingness to perhaps consider some things you haven't considered before. The willingness to say that while what you may be already doing may not be bad at all, it may not be getting you where you want to go. It may not be the most effective. It may not work for everyone. And there may be some blind spots or some areas where you hadn't considered before that may need some additional consideration to like, really affect the change or be, um, or serve the community you really want to serve. That may need to be considered or addressed.
0: Nonprofits, for-profits, everything in between. I imagine every group you work with is different, and I'm wondering uh-huh. what it's like to assess, you know, in the first few hours, the, the first couple of opportunities to talk with a group. Okay, which direction do we go?
4: Yeah, it's a very interesting process, and we continue to learn and grow also. We, we, we do not um, want to position ourselves as the be-all experts on this at all. We're learning and growing as well, but we do have some experience that allows us to, you um, perhaps hear what hasn't been said or make an observation that may not be explicit and use that information to ask more questions, to uh, facilitate deeper conversations about a particular incident or issue or a concern. Um, So that's really interesting, and that's really the exciting part about it is to really work with organizations to say, well, have you considered such and such? Or our observations show this, or we have heard this from your staff, that kind of thing.
0: I imagine there is a nuance mm-hmm. to this kind of work.
4: Very much so. Very much so. And um, and it's very complex work. Um, but we spend a lot of time trying to uh, an effort, trying to understand and trying to learn ourselves. And you know, we're going to make inevitable mistakes and mishaps, and we want to be upfront about those things. So we spend a lot of time on our own culture, so that we can perhaps partner along with others on how they might address their own cultures as well.
0: Grace is part of this?
4: Grace is a lot of this. Because you are inevitably going to make some errors. And if you are not willing to make the mistakes, you are not going to be as effective.
0: Yeah, so I'm wondering, we've all been in family situations or work situations where perhaps something needs to be said but goes unsaid. Someone's afraid of how they're going to say it, they're afraid of a reaction by someone who's older or younger or superior. How do you manage all of that?
4: Yeah, that's where we um, try to spend a lot of time in terms of just creating a foundation of understanding of even language. You know, so if I say diversity and you have one idea of diversity and have a different understanding, we're making these assumptions because we never discuss, what do you mean we're already in trouble? So one of the first things we do is try to just have an agreed-upon language that we understand what we're saying, what we're talking about. Um, We very often talk about this continuum of there's the individual. Like, I have to do my own work. I have to be self-aware. I have to understand my own biases. Um, Then there's the interpersonal, how I treat you and how that may be based upon my own biases and my own individual things. And then we move on to the institutional. What does the organization um believe in what do what does the organization um, support what is implicit within the organization that may hinder or encourage certain things and then we move on to the structural and having an understanding of how all this has worked in the United States too so, um, it's a continuum of understanding, and it's a growth process. So there's no end goal like of, like, this is the destination and we've reached it. It's a constant growth project, pro- process that would allow us to be open to that flexibility of, like, oh, I've made an error here. Or what I previously thought was true is not. Let me readjust. Let me come into connection with you and collaboration with you to help us figure a way forward. You know, it takes a lot of growth.
0: If there can be confusion or miscommunication or assumptions with the D and DEI, diversity, I imagine the E and the I, equity and inclusion, you can have even wider self-definitions of those, it's of what true. that means.
4: It's true. And um, that's why it's really important for individuals and groups to have these open conversations. But it's the um, resistance to the conversation and perhaps the conflict that maybe arise or the work that it will entail that is the barrier that you've got to get through, Um, but very often when we're working with organizations, somebody in the organization is at a point where they're willing to have this conversation or at least engage in this process, at least to get started. So we're usually very um, happy about that and um, we start where we start, the organization is where they are and we go from there.
0: Most organizations have someone come in, comes in that is interested in self-growth for themselves or for their colleagues or for their organization. But let's just throw out the altruism for a second and say they want to come in because they just realize in 2023 it's smart business or it's smart outreach. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's not the ideal, I guess, starting point, but it's a starting point.
4: You start where you start. Um, And um, again, you know, it's not for us to have any judgment on how you got to this moment and how you got to this point. Um, We have a benefit we can offer you in terms of additional information um, and an enlarged perspective, new language, perhaps a new understanding of something, um, more tools, more um, tactics that can make you more effective. Um, So, We very often walk into situations where there may be resistance or skepticism, and um, I'm not going to tell you that everybody just loves us, but, you know, very often we can at least engage in a meaningful conversation where we have learned something, you have learned something, et cetera. So it can be very helpful. But change is hard, and it takes a long time, and people change at the rate of their own self-interest. So that's not anything we can control.
0: Do we come to you? Do you come to us?
4: So, anyone can reach us. We are at um, ideals.uark.edu. That's where you can find us on our webpage. Um, we are doing, um, and you can find us specifically there, and our um, contact information is all listed there. Our true initiative has its own uh, webpage, and that's trueideals.org. That's where you can find more information about that. Now, that's a, a, a different project that we, I'm sure, mm-hmm. can talk yeah. about as well. So,
0: Yeah, let's talk about 2023. I know there are cohorts that you can apply for now. One is train, one is recharge. Correct. It sounds like one is for getting in the door and one is for continuing the work.
4: That's true. So the True Powered by Ideals initiative is a continuation of True NWA, which was started a few years ago. And so we are really excited about our opportunity to um, engage in the work alongside the Walton Family Foundation and Walmart uh, Foundation. And so um, it's a two year process. Last year, 2022 was the start of the program and TRU stands for Train, Recharge and Uplift. TRAIN, the TRAIN cohort, is for organizations, nonprofit organizations in Northwest Arkansas who are newer to um, diversity, equity, inclusion in terms of embedding it into their practices, perhaps and into how they um, approach the communities they serve. And they're looking for a cohort experience where they can learn more, understand those that foundational capacity building around diversity, equity, inclusion. Recharge is for organizations who've already started. They perhaps have made some steps. They have strategic plans around this. They have some work already started, but they are looking for um, an opportunity to come alongside other organizations who are wrestling with the same issues that they're wrestling with, uh, facing the same kinds of challenges, perhaps have questions in how do you continue the work, etc. And so recharge is for those. Now the uplift cohort is a two-year group that started in 22 and they will continue the same set of organizations will continue into 2023 so there is no application process for that group but train and recharge are um, accepting applications right now through february
0: 3rd are there questions or things you should consider before you apply or just a sort of process that an organization might want to think
4: about are we ready to go in? What do we need to? we bring our best? Sure. Thank you for asking that. If you visit the website, which is trueideals.org, there's a lot of information there about which cohort is best for your organization, what you might expect, what are the expectations. But generally speaking, organizations who um, have the time commitment, um, you'll need your CEO or your executive director will need to engage as well as a board member or a staff member and uh, for train there are I want to say six sessions for recharge four sessions throughout the year as well as some community of action opportunities and our community of actions are when we bring all three of the cohorts together to learn together to connect to have some um, networking time etc so there are a few of those so you'll need to have some time in your schedule to commit to the program. Um, And if we're only meeting four to six times a year, then you need to know that in order to really make some inroads in your own work, you'll have to dedicate some time outside of those cohort experiences to do that. But in terms of the specifics, if they visit, uh, if your listeners would visit trueideals.org, you can find out a lot more information and really kind of hone into which cohort is the best for them.
0: Alicia Smith is the executive director of the Ideals Institute at the University of Arkansas. She came to the Carver Center for Public Radio last week. Coming up on season four of
1: Undisciplined.
5: I love the ways that they use their environment. I love that they use physical, like the plants that were in Africa, specifically West Africa, they not only use them for medicinal purposes,
4: but they'd use them for physical means, too. Because I think that the people who are outraged, like, why would we not? We want to keep our kids safe and all of these things, you know, and it's like, it's not just a safety, pres- these school resource officers are trained to be
6: police officers. The Constitution says it's, it's not right to hold you in custody just because of your poverty. So judges should consider the ability to pay. But what I'm telling you is they don't. Nobody looks at that question. Almost nobody does.
1: Episode 1 of Season 4 drops January 18th. Listen for free
0: wherever you get your podcasts. And we're going to have an excerpt from that first episode of the season on tomorrow's Ozarks at Large at noon and 7. Winter can be an excellent time for viewing stars because cold air holds less moisture than warm air. Winter nights often have clear viewing conditions, making January a pretty good time to try night sky viewing. Hobbs State Park is going to host a nighttime sky viewing opportunity Saturday night. The evening will begin with an indoor lecture at the park's Visitor Center at 530. The night sky viewing begins at 630. Visitors should be able to view Jupiter and Mars. And the Andromeda galaxy should be visible to the naked eye. If you're going, you're encouraged to dress warmly. Bring a telescope and a flashlight with a red balloon or red cloth over the lens. For those without a telescope, the Sugar Creek Astronomical Society providing high-powered telescopes. Other helpful items to bring include a lawn chair, binoculars, and a blanket. And by the way, Arkansas State Parks, introducing Club 52, a rewards program that encourages people to visit all 52 state parks. Club 52 is an extension of the Arkansas State Parks Passport Program, which helps guests document trips to state parks by receiving a stamp in an Arkansas State Parks passport. Club 52 members get their passport stamped when they visit a state park. And earn rewards after visits of five parks, 25 parks, and all 52 parks. It's free. It's open to everyone. A free passport can be picked up at an Arkansas State Park Visitor Center.
1: This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. And this is the voice of Sam Cooke.
3: Darling, you send said-
1: From his roots in gospel music with the Soul Stirrers, through his secular, chart-topping career, Cook became one of the most influential figures in soul and pop music. He died when he was just 33, shot to death in a hotel room in Los Angeles. Later this month, Cook's music will take center stage at Walton Arts Center when Brad Marquis, backed by a big band, delivers a tribute. Ozarks at Larger's Rachel Sanchez-Smith recently talked with Brad Marquis. She asked him about his relationship with Sam Cooke's music. Uh,
7: you know, my house, my grandparents would just had the radio one for no reason, or every reason, I guess, to create ambiance. So I was, I would always listen to the music but I didn't know who I was listening to. So when I, you know, discovered that, it just made me dive even deeper into the man's life. So I just started consuming everything Sam Cooke. And three months later, I did the first show. It was, I think it was March or April of 2009. I did a one-man, I don't want to say one-man show because I had a full band. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but yeah, I just did a show where I, um, you know, paralleled his journey with my own at that time and um, just sang his songs, sang my songs. And as the years went on, the show has evolved about four or five different times yeah. and uh, to, to where we are now.
5: And Brad, as you're, I mean, preparing for this world, kind of like a lifelong journey of preparing, right, what things about his life, what um, struggles or achievements or stories stood out to you um, about him and during this research process?
7: Um, Really, his entrepreneurial spirit stood out that was a major part of it is, you know, him growing up in the church. I grew up in the church. I sang in the church. He sang in the church. Um, you know, I wanted to be a, a, a big, I won't say a pop star, but I wanted to be a, an artist, um, you know, successful artist. He wanted to be a successful artist because of, um, how the music industry has transitioned over the years. Everybody, you know, kind of has become their own brand and their own business. And his entrepreneurial acumen and his willingness to impact his friends and family around him and, and bring them along for the ride um, really resonated. And, and just his, you know, when he transitions, you know, towards his activism, those things really struck me because that was, you know, I, I had always been, I don't want to say an activist, but I had always been involved in the community. And I always helped youth and I always did my very best to inspire youth even when I was one. Um, so those things, you know, just having a communal impact was very big for me.
5: Pivoting off of what you said earlier, right, the show has been or redi- renditions of it have been happening for a while, and including you performing in it since the early aughts. Is there anything that changes between those performances and, and those runs of the show or new things that you add or has it consistently stayed the same?
7: no it ain't oh my goodness the first show like i said was a hybrid um from you know me singing my own personal uh music and singing sam Cooke's music and then it just became me singing sam Cooke's music and then i wanted i didn't want it just to be just the music i wanted to tell the stories behind the music and then when i got more involved and, and learned more about his you know his uh activism, mm-hmm. I started getting involved, you know, I started researching that and including that into the music, into the show, and then when I, you know, then it just became about, it became not just okay telling his story, but actually let's just set the backdrop. Let's just take people out of 20, wherever we're at, 2020 20, 15, 16, eight, 20, wherever we're at, and just send them all the way back to 1959, or send them back to 1964, um, you know, and just really immerse them in that time frame. You know, not just with uh, the music, not just with the story, but now with the imagery. Now with you know the video, you know the videos that we decided to start showing. With the the looks that we, you know, the the looks that we started to have. You know, the band would dress up a certain way. The background singers, myself, we'd actually look, you know, retro sixties. You know, so, and the show went from uh, a forty-five-minute show to an hour show to an hour and fifteen to a, you know, to what it is now—a two-hour show with a fifteen-minute intermission. So it's, you know, it's just grown in every which way, and I'm sure it'll continue to grow because my ultimate goal is to hopefully have it on Broadway one day.
5: This new so, single uh, that you'll have yeah. released on January twenty-seventh, right? Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell me a little bit more behind the making of "Blowing in the Wind," and how the kind of merging of the Sam Cooke and Bob Dylan classic, and kind of the cultural and, and political significance of that of that song?
7: Oh wow! Um, well, obviously, it's it's again, unfortunately, it's still a song that you know you could have written today, and mm-hmm. it, you, you would have known the difference. Um, but it, it was it was a song that Sam Cooke it was written by Bob Dylan and Sam Cooke thought it spoke so closely to the black experience at that time that he, you know, he thought a black man wrote it or should have written it, but he did the next best thing and he, he covered it and he performed it. Um, my, in my journey, um, you know, it's one of my favorite songs to sing in my show. Um, and I, uh, last year around this time, I had another, I had a tour. And at the end of that tour, we did a live recording of it, you know, where we recorded video, recorded audio, things of that nature. And the audio actually turned out amazing. And It was never my intention to record the audio or put out (laughs) any type of project, but it just turned out amazing. And so we went and, you know, we mixed and mastered and things of that nature. And we actually have the whole live show recorded. Wow, And so Blowing in the Wind is just one of the songs from the last show.
5: What do you hope audiences will take away after your performance in the show and hearing um, your rendition of Sam Cooke's music?
7: I want them to understand his impact on, you know, a lot of audiences who come. They may be familiar with him, but even for those who are not familiar with him, the, the newer generations, I want to know, you know, uh, his impact on everything that's happening today um i want them to hopefully see themselves some find something in it that resonates with their life that they can take from it and and grow um some inspiration hopefully unity hopefully love um love for one another and self-love because you know he was a big component of loving yourself i mean um one of the things that he's attributed to is the afro Mm uh so and that is significant because, you know, during that time, a lot, there were a lot of different things that black Americans did to try and make themselves acceptable. Of course. And and having an afro became a way of uh, just embracing your your identity, self-identity.
5: I mean, the pioneering in so many different realms. It's so important to stress that. Um, and and one just last question, Brad. Mm-hmm. Um, just out of personal curiosity, if you could ask Sam Cook one question, right, to bring to prepare for this role, um, what would that question be, and, and and why?
7: If I could ask him one question to prepare for this role, yes. Hmm, that is a great question. Um, hmm, that is a great question. I thought the first thing that came to me is, is what is, what was, what's your motivation? Mm. What's your motivation? Like when you're on that stage, when you're in front of the audience, when, what are you trying to get across? What do you want them to take from hearing your music or seeing you perform? So that, that would be my, my, uh, question him.
5: Similarly to what you said, I I didn't realize I'd grown up listening to Sam Cooke music until, right, the it comes back into the stratosphere of, OK, there's a show and there's I'm like, oh, my gosh, all the dots are connecting together. So mm-hmm. this is just such and an exciting a, time.
7: <laughs> I've, I've found that it is a great way for multi-generations to enjoy something together. I've, oh, I yeah. see mom and dad. I see grandfather, grandmother. I see son and daughter. Every, I mean, all three generations. Uh, that is what truly I, I just get such a kick out of that. When I walk out to greet folks and I see three different generations who came to see the show.
5: What a compliment, right, that, that so many different kinds of people can enjoy this and, and yes. relate. <laughs> yes,
7: yes. And it, it just blows me away. Like, yeah, this is what it's about. This is what it's about.
5: Brad Marquis will
0: present the music of Sam Cooke at Walton Arts Center in Fayetteville, Monday night, January 30th. He talked with Ozarks at Large's Rachel Sanchez Smith last week. More information about the show can be found at waltonartscenter.org. Hey, it's A. Martinez from Morning Edition. Waking up your body every morning is hard enough, so why not make waking up your mind easier? Every morning, we bring you the latest news and headlines, plus a little something to make you smile, think, maybe even laugh, so you can get those neurons fired up for the day ahead. So wake up your brain with us. Listen to Morning Edition from NPR News every weekday.
1: Morning edition, every weekday morning
0: from 5 to 9 on KUAF. Cherokee Nation Principal Chief Chuck Hoskin Jr. and Deputy Chief Brian Warner are proposing new legislation that would commit over $100 million for addiction treatment facilities, new treatment programs, a scholarship endowment, and other initiatives using settlement funds from the tribe's opioid and e cigarette settlements. The proposal expands on legislation first passed in 2021 and amended last year that already dedicated 7% of third-party health insurance collections to physical and mental wellness programs. It also locked down $15 million in opioid settlement funds for addiction treatment facility construction. The proposed legislation would dedicate an additional $83 million in opioid settlement funds and nearly $2 million in settlement funds from e-cigarette manufacturer Juul. The Arkansas PBS program Good Roots places mental health in its spotlight this Friday. Wendy Blackwood, a licensed professional counselor with Healing Path Counseling, is working to spread the word and normalize the conversation about mental health among farmers and ranchers. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, farming is considered one of the most stressful occupations in the United States with a suicide rate reaching about 50 percent higher than the national average. She'll discuss recognizing signs of depression in an all-new Good Roots segment that can be seen for the first time on Arkansas PBS Friday night during Arkansas Week, beginning at 730. It will also live stream at myarpbs.org watch. And the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences Mindfulness Program is offering the Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction Program online beginning Friday. According to a press release from UAMS, participants will learn mindfulness techniques that foster positivity, inner strength, and peace, while providing useful skills for navigating difficulty, stress, illness, and pain. The program is an eight-week, nine-session training in mindful awareness and meditation skills. Classes will meet weekly online for about two hours and for an all-day session toward the end of the course. Orientation takes place from 10 until 12.30 this Friday. Classes 1 through 8 will then meet 10 to 12.30 Fridays from this Friday to March 17th. The all-day class and retreat, 9 to 3 on Saturday, March 4th. Cost for the course, $300. That covers all materials. More information about the Mindfulness
8: Program at mindfulness.uams For the Central Arkansas Library System, I'm Mark Chris with an Encyclopedia of Arkansas Minute. A Fort Smith native published an anthology of her short stories that pilloried society in small southern towns. Thyra Samter Winslow published My Own, My Native Land, a collection of 40 stories in 1935. Some had been published in The New Yorker under a banner that became the title of the anthology. Others had appeared in Smart Set, a publication subtitled A Magazine of Cleverness. Smartset's co-editor, H.L. Mencken, was a fan of Winslow's writing, since they each held negative opinions of the U.S. west of New York. Winslow's articles centered on small towns and the aspirations of women's to belong to the upper social classes. Some sought to hold on to their status as the best families, while others sought to conceal unsuccessful family members. One chronicles a man similar to Jewish merchant Louis Samter, Winslow's father. Her Hugo Dahmer mentors younger men who drive him out of business. Eulogize as the best man in town, someone says, and a lot of good it did him. To learn more, visit EncyclopediaOfArkansas.net. Tomorrow on Ozark's 75 years of the Fort Smith Ram.
5: We've just been collecting art, wonderful art, all these years for 75 years. And so we have a permanent collection that was behind doors and not being shown. And so it's... Everyone has loved this new edition of the permanent collection. Sometimes they'll walk through and see pieces they remember from years back.
0: The Fort Smith Regional Art Museum will celebrate three-quarters of a century of existence with ceramics from Pablo Picasso. And that's just the beginning of a year-long observation of the anniversary. A trip to the museum tomorrow at noon and 7 p.m. on Ozarks at Large. And ask your smart speaker to play Ozarks at Large to hear the most recent
1: episode. In 2005, Ozark Mountain Solid Waste District borrowed $12 million to purchase and improve an old landfill in Baxter County in north-central Arkansas to centralize waste collections. of costs to repair the facility caused the district to default on that loan. The state was forced to step in, spending millions more to close and seal the site, completed in 2018. But now, as Ozark's largest Jacqueline Felic reports, Ozark Mountain Solid Waste District plans to sell the old dump site.
9: Ozark Mountain Solid Waste District, one of 18 districts like it in Arkansas, is comprised of Boone, Marion, Newton, Searcy, Baxter, and Carroll County, which has dropped off. Early on, to become financially self-sustaining, the district board voted to secure $12.3 million in revenue bonds issued by Bank of the Ozarks, to purchase a 30-year-old landfill operation called Neighbors, North Arkansas Board of Regional Sanitation, in northern Baxter County. The plan was to locally landfill district trash, rather than pay costs to haul the garbage to distant dumps, and profit from tipping fees paid by non-district waste haulers. That plan went awry after the Arkansas Department of Environmental Quality DEQ under new regulations, required the district to upgrade the overflowing landfill before using it. Unable to pay that cost, the Solid Waste District in 2012 defaulted on the loan and attempted to file for bankruptcy. Bank of the Ozarks, now Bank OZK, on behalf of bondholders, filed suit in Pulaski County Court in 2014 to recover the debt. A court-appointed receiver recommended levying an $18 solid waste fee on all property owners in the district to repay the bonds. County property owners sued, claiming the tax is unconstitutional. That case remains in litigation. ADEQ was forced to step in to close, seal, monitor, and maintain the landfill, which to date has cost $15.6 million dollars. Last year, Ozark Mountain Solid Waste District Board voted to sell the landfill to Lakeshore Recycling Systems, LLC, headquartered in Illinois, for a half million dollars. We contacted the company several times with questions, no response. Hillary Adams, mayor of Mountain Home and District Board member, says he was not present when the board voted last year to sell the landfill.
3: What concerns me the most is anybody, and it doesn't matter if it's Lakeshore or any other company, my concern, regardless of who that is, is with the potential damage to our sources of water in Baxter County.
9: Referring to landfill leachate, the liquid leaking into the watershed's drinking water supply, he says.
3: 75%, approximately 75% of the people in Baxter County get their water out of Lake North Fork which is less than six miles from uh, this landfill.
9: The 60-acre landfill, located on 700 acres northeast of Mountain Home, is perched between two impoundments on the White River system. The second is Bull Shoals Lake, where Ozark Mountain Regional Water Authority supplies drinking water to three cities, three towns, and 11 rural water associations.
3: And I just do not want to see it ever reopened. For a landfill, it should have never been done in the first place because of the the, the substructure. You know, what's under the landfill and any kind of leakage, the risk it it runs to damage that water we've got.
9: Baxter County subsurface geology is comprised of sandstone, small amounts of shale, as well as fractured, karst limestone, and dolomite through which surface and groundwater quickly travels. Test wells installed on neighbors' landfill indicates the presence of toxic leachate in groundwater.
6: The question is, why would a company purchase an old landfill with liabilities?
9: Sam Cook is president of the nonprofit Friends of the North Fork and White Rivers. The remediated closure under the
6: Post-Closure Trust Fund uh, was completed in
9: 2018.
6: ADEQ has left the permit open, and so the, the permit can be transferred.
9: We queried DEQ about the permit. Office of Land Resources emailed that despite being closed, the landfill's permit remains and unless transferred will be voided at the end of the 30-year post-closure period. DEQ also furnished the most recent, October 2022, groundwater monitoring report for neighbors' landfill.
6: Listing the um, leachate chemicals um, there and... um, Which is comprised of of gases and organic, other organic compounds, and and heavy metals uh, as well. A lot of which are um, at levels uh, above what is considered to be acceptable uh, a level for uh, human consumption or human exposure. And we do know that these leachate, this leachate, has been in existence for a long time. And there are records in the database indicating that. The ADEQ was aware of hazardous chemicals dating back to the late 80s, and monitoring in wells began in the, uh, I believe, in the early 2000s.
9: Cook says DEQ's closure five years ago of the facility involved installing astroturf on top of the filled waste pits and berms around the landfill cells to prevent rain infiltration,
6: which would direct any uh, surface water and water leaking from the landfill at that level out of the groundwater and into these berms becoming surface water and that directed in turn directed it to some ponds and then they would go out periodically uh, I don't know how often exactly with tanker trucks and uh, and fill up the tanker trucks at the ponds and then this these uh, this leachate would be taken to a site near Springfield there's a business there that uh, handles uh, hazardous waste, assimilates that waste.
9: Cook says no one knows how much, how far, and for how long toxic landfill leachate has traveled in Baxter County and beyond. Mountain Home Mayor Hillary Adams says he's in communication with DEQ about the potential sale and transfer of neighbors' permit to one of the nation's largest privately held solid waste management firms.
3: Before uh, it could be opened back up, there would have to be a modification to the existing permit before they could start taking trash again, and then we would have the public hearing process to go through.
9: Baxter County Quorum Court, as well as Mountain Home City Council, recently passed resolutions opposing the reopening of the troubled landfill.
3: If we turn this over to a private company that's owned by someone in Australia that's based out of Illinois, how do we know that that company a year from now is not going to go defunct or sell it to somebody else and decide they don't want to monitor it anymore. You know, in my opinion, is the state of Arkansas made this mess in the first place, they should be responsible for taking care of it.
9: We queried Ozark Mountain Solid Waste District for comment. Former Chair Fred Wohl replied via email saying proceeds from the sale will pay bondholders some money. Wohl also said if sold, counties would greatly benefit and that maintenance care and compliance with state requirements for the landfill would fall on the new owners. According to the draft purchase and sales agreement provided for this report, which is signed but not dated, Lakeshore Recycling Systems would excavate new landfill cells or pits on the parcel to bury trash. But just how much garbage from how many states will be hauled by LRS into Baxter County remains unknown. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich.
1: This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Scranton. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas.
0: Contributors today included Rachel Sanchez-Smith, Jacqueline Froelich, and Mark Christ. Our theme is written and performed by Daryl Sean, Matthew, Produced today's show inside the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. We return with a brand new show tomorrow at noon and at 7 p.m. From the Carver Center for Public Radio, I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellams. Thanks for listening. Before we go, did you watch the Arkansas Razorback women's basketball team take on Vanderbilt last night?
1: I did. That was a much uh, more enjoyable Arkansas-Vanderbilt competition (laughs) in basketball.
0: Yeah, the men losing Saturday to follow the 1-4. and That was a crazy ending. Nobody had any timeouts. Ten seconds to go. Arkansas up by three. Vandy banks in a shot.
1: Yes. It's a shot that normally you watch that shot and you say, all right, that's game. Right.
0: And then Arkansas came back and they banked in a shot. Uh, Michaela Daniels hit the game winner. Yeah, yeah. As the buzzer sounded. Yeah,
1: yeah. Very,
0: very fun game to watch. Uh, By the way, Sailor Poffenberger... The freshman mm-hmm. for the university, a freshman for the university, but kind of the freshman in the SEC. She's now won SEC freshman of the year or of the week five times already. That's a lot. Yeah, because there haven't been that many weeks in the basketball season. Yeah. All right. So uh, Arkansas, I think that makes them four and one in the SEC.
5: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, now, I think they've got a stretch where they've got mm-hmm. at they're going to be at LSU, mm-hmm. and LSU's already. Defeated them once this year by double digits. You got South Carolina and they're a monster.
1: Yeah. Perennial yeah. top team.
0: Um so yeah, it's at LSU Thursday night at the Maravich Assembly Center, and then I think it's South Carolina after that. So but still four one of the SEC. Looking strong. Yeah. Uh did you have a good holiday break?
1: I did. I did. Uh, we are still in the midst of preparing my house for a miniature human to join us. Mm-hmm. Um, that so probably sp- won't end anytime soon. <laughs> 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 then so, the
0: miniature human joins you. Yes. Yeah. yeah.
1: So spending a lot of time uh, preparing the rest of the house for that. So. All right.
0: Uh, we'll have an excerpt from s- the 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 lid lifter for fourth season of Undisciplined on tomorrow's show, the F- Fort Smith Ram seventy fifth anniversary, and much more.
1: That's right. And you can always catch up with the story if you miss it on OzarksAtLarge.com or listen to the podcast. Wherever you listen to podcasts, just search for Ozarks At Large. How much does that podcast cost me? It doesn't cost you a penny. All right. Thanks for being with us, folks.